Welcome to another episode of Ed Luminaries with Alejandra Zertuche, CEO of Enflux, who brings you powerful educator perspectives hailing from all walks of life. Get inspired and obtain great takeaways that you can apply to help set your students up for success. Sometimes all it takes is to hear how innovative educators approach similar problems and overcome obstacles to support breakthrough academic success. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us today. I'm Alejandra Sartuche and you're listening to Ed Luminaries Podcast, where we talk with educational leaders to find out how they're thinking and working creatively to drive student success. In today's episode, of the Humanics Approach to Assessment in Education, we're going to hear from Michael Fulford, Director of Assessment at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Alondra. Um, it's wonderful. It's a great opportunity. I'm enjoying it. It's just so it's always fun to talk to you and to be able to chat about these topics. So. I always love catching up with you. And um, I just want to share with the listeners that I invited you to do this podcast as we were talking about the, the, the book that you read. And I just finished the book, The Robot Proof. And, and it's like, how do we make sure that we're graduating students with career, that we're preparing students to have a career that are going to survive uh, machines? Um, right, artificial intelligence. How are we going to make sure that they have a career that is not going to be replaced by some algorithm or some automated process? And this book was written by the president of Northeastern University, uh, Joseph Aum, um, and it's just wonderful. So thank you so much for introducing me to the book and for joining me today. No problem. So the book talks about, um, you know, humanics, but be before we get into that topic, I, I would love the listeners to know more about you. What sure. brought you to the world of education? Right, so um, I won't go too far back, but uh, when I, I started my undergrad at the University of Georgia and did my bachelor's degree there uh, and my master's degree there, but it's interesting, I had all intent plans to be a lawyer. Uh, I went in poli-sci, pre-law, was going to totally go that route. Um, and my, somewhere in my sophomore year in college, I realized, I don't think I want to be a lawyer. Um, and I was wandering around talking to a colleague, some friends, and not colleagues then, but they're friends. And one of them was doing accounting. And I said, oh, what is, you know, interested in accounting? I said, well, I'm good with numbers. I figured I could do accounting. So I got into the business school and started as a switch to an accounting major. And along the way, I picked up a theater minor. I've always been a person in the arts and did theater. And, and so I ended up with an accounting major and a drama theater minor. Um, and along the way, I also did ballroom dancing. Uh, so I joined the I took a ballroom dance class and became a, you know, a member of the University of Georgia's ballroom performance group. And so that's another big key. So in college, undergrad, I was really just kind of exploring all these pieces. I, I'm honestly, I'm really wasn't, I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, but then I became an RA in the residence halls. I was a resident assistant and was really involved and really enjoyed that. And somewhere near my senior year, my, uh, supervisor pulled me aside and said, hey, have you thought about working in higher education, in student affairs in higher ed? 
I said, oh, I, I don't know. He says, he goes, you know, you could run the residence halls and, and work with students that way. And I realized, because um, he said I he could tell I really enjoyed working with students and doing programming and other things like that. And it really hadn't dawned on me that what I was doing was education. I was just really having fun and hanging out and, you know, leading programs and activities in my residence hall or, you know, at the school. Free dorm. In the dorm or whatever. Yeah. And um, they, uh, he said, you know, you can do this for a living. I said, wow, this is awesome. So then I explored it and ended up uh, staying at UGA to do my master's in uh, what they call student personnel in higher ed. So it was really in the counseling department. So it's a, it was a mix of counseling and then studying psychological, social development of students within the college age frame. So we, we looked at traditional age college students from like 17 to 30. And so we, and so that's where I really started with that. And um, so I was always working in, from there, I, I've worked in higher education my whole life, the rest of my career, but never like, not as much in the classroom. And so all of my experiences were, you know, with co-curricular activities and uh, other types of extracurricular. And uh, so my first job, I worked at a small private liberal arts school in Atlanta called Oglethorpe University and was responsible for the residence halls and the rec, and the rec center and the ramp intramural sports. But even then, because of my master's, you know, I would do workshops and sessions on student development and how these activities help students grow. And um, so, you know, if you think about now in my job with assessment, we talk a lot about the affective domain. Well, pretty much all of the beginning of my career, I lived in the affective domain. You know, I was focusing more on students' ability to communicate and be respectful, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and leadership. And my thesis, uh, master's uh, thesis publishable was leadership development. So those are those kind of areas. Um, so then I decided I needed to do a doctoral degree because I wanted, uh, I didn't, you know, I wanted opportunities. And in education, it's become one of those things to you need the doctor to get to certain levels if you want. So um, I did my PhD at Georgia State University in educational policy and social foundations of education was my cognate. Now that program was actually a mix of K through 12 to higher ed in terms of studies. But my dissertation was on college football reform. So I studied college athletics and power constructs and athletics and how it relates to everything at, in higher ed. Um, but along the way, I learned a lot, you know, learn about policy and governance and um, assessment. Um, but it's really uh, during, it was really during that time and, and my job at Oglethorpe when I started the doctoral program where I really got into assessment. Um, and it's funny, I, I, now I realize that I think it was a part of my accounting undergrad that really made me think about it. Um, I make the comment to folks that I'm, I'm like the auditor, but for not the month, but not money. I'm, I'm, audit, I'm auditing the outcomes and how we evaluate what we do and our goals. And so what happened at Oglethorpe was um, it's, a, it's a school without a lot of money. So you were constantly justifying what you needed. And I always needed data to prove that. And so when I worked, I went from Oglethorpe to Georgia Tech uh, in Atlanta. It's an engineering school and I was worked in res life there. And that's really, that's really where I kind of started making my mark with assessment. Um, I started focusing on what were the relationships between what we did in the residence halls and what we did in our student activities and other extracurricular co-curricular programming and students uh, affinity for being there and their sense of community. And so what I was able to do is, you know, use the data we collected on students' sense of belonging and community within 
the residence hall, the out of class experience and relate it back to create interventions and programming to help you know, do better, uh, to, uh, to help us train students. Um, I think the best example, uh, I worked at Oglethorpe and was, I mean, worked at Oglethorpe, I worked at Georgia Tech and I ran the freshman experience program. And that was all of our first year programs in the residence halls. And the conversation, I remember you looking at the data and at the time we had about two, you know, all of our freshmen, we surveyed them and we asked them, do you feel like a part of community? And it was about, uh, 75%, 70 to 75% said yes, or some like strongly agree to agree. And I remember going to my staff because we had a program there where we had a ratio of 12 to 13 students to each um, peer leader we hired, each student staff member. So it was an expensive program. We had a lot of student staff, but it was worth it to help with that first year transition, which is difficult at an academically rigorous school. And when I turned around, uh, we went to a training one time and I met with all the students and I learned at Georgia Tech because they're engineering students, I needed to use the statistics to communicate with them. So I showed them, I said, well, here's, here's the data. 70% of students feel like a part of community and they're all sided and cheering. And I showed them, I said, now in our apartment style buildings, um, it's the same percentage. I said, but the ratio there is 40 students to each staff member. So I told them, I said, really, I can fire two of you per building per floor now and save money if I want to get this sort of result. And they just got really quiet. <laughs> and, and they were like, I said, y'all, I pay, I pay you and I have more of you because freshmen are, we worry about freshmen and every freshman we lose costs us money. It costs us prestige. It costs us a mm -hmm. lot. I need you to do a better job. And then I showed them the correlations. I said, if you look at our surveys, the students who, said that their RA, their peer leader, interacted with them uh, more often were the ones who had a higher sense of belonging community. And I told them, I said, you know, what we know psychologically is a person just needs to feel like they're connected to at least one other person to feel like they're a part of something, family, a unit of something. They need one person. In some cases, I, so I said, I always need you to be that first person. Now, they may meet other people, but they better meet you. And that was, I said, and that's the job. And over the next three years, we continued to build on that. And when I left that position, 95% um, of the students said they felt like a part of a community. So that's just, so to me, that was the power of using data, not just to get money or anything, but it was how I transformed the way my students worked and the way they went about their job. And I, and I, and I was able to use that data to say, you know, I'm not saying I need you to do data to do anything really fancy and technical. I was using it to say, how do you talk to people? I need you to get out there and communicate and connect with people. So they, and that's what will change the data. And that's what it was. And so it, it's incredible because it seems that from being an, I, your job as an AR, I, I, uh, I forgot the residency job that you yeah. had, right. all the way to um, your PhD. You have mm -hmm. always been in this journey of experiential education. Yes. You're learning mm -hmm. and practicing, but right. not just like an internship, like real yeah. jobs that have consequences if we make mistakes or if we don't do the right thing, or if we do the right thing, you see the outcome of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also it's incredible how you were able to apply the three literacies that the book talks mm -hmm. about, right? right. Technology, 
which is doing the surveys using technology to collect the data. The second one is data being data literary, literacy, which means collecting that information and understanding the story behind that. And the third um, literacy is humans. How do we communicate with them? Right? How do we how do we tell them what this data is saying? You were able to speak their language, show them the data, and you gain their buy-in, right? They and Alejandro, that's a great point. I'm glad you bring that up. And, and so what I love about that book and why I really mm-hmm. it's spoken to me in terms of this approach is that's exactly what happened there. Is I needed a way to I needed to change the frame of mind of these students. Mm-hmm. These are you know, these are engineering students. They, they have a very specific mindset and, you know, they're student staff. So they, they like, you know, this is a part-time job. It's a side gig. So how do I convince them? And I knew I needed to challenge them at their level and, and at their own, actually beat them at their own game. Yes. I, I used to always make the joke with them. I always said to them, listen, I had to get a PhD just so I could communicate with y'all because y'all are so smart. Right. And they would, they would, they just laugh and whatnot. But that's exactly what it was. Is I could, I had to demonstrate I'm gonna I'm gonna use technology to get information, um, and the data piece was big. I collected data across, so we collected the same data across all of 8,000 students living on campus. And then what I was able to do is to take that big data set. I used it in a lot of ways. This is just one example, but I used it to argue for maintaining like additional programming. Because when you add extra student staff, the facilities folks and the business people will say like, well, they're not bringing us money. What's the revenue generation? And I'd say, it's not revenue generation, it's revenue retention. And yeah. that's what I would tell them. I said, you, sometimes you have to remember, we put things in place, not because they're going to bring us more money, but they keep us from losing money. And mm-hmm. that's the thing that I said, every student you lose. And I showed them, I said, at Georgia Tech, we have buildings built in 1910. Why do I want to, why do I, I'm spending all this money to live on campus in this old building shoved into a room with two people? So what makes me want to stay? And the students would rate the facilities as fair or poor, but they would rate their experience as excellent or good. And I would show that data comparison to folks and say, I said, this is the human element, y'all. I said, the building is not why they live here. The building's not what makes them happy. It's the people. It's the programming. And so that was the creativity and innovation. And, and, you know, with the students, I would actually do things like I started using like Newton's law and other types <laughs> of, I started applying community development using engineering principles. And I would say, see, this happens and we would do activities, but those are, that's the piece is uh, for me, it's about taking data and, and assessment is more than just numbers and pre- or even qualitative sharing stories. It's about you actualizing that story for people. And because I think the part of assessment everyone misses is closing the loop. Yes, big time. And, and so, right, that human element is about the, the human literacy piece of this book about humanics is about creativity. How do you become innovative and creative? Well, the idea is you have, you use technology, you collect data, you analyze that data. But you take that information and present it and share it and apply it in a way that makes things creative and innovative and hopefully finds a way for you to come up with new ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also allows us um, to get into those pieces. So, you know, that was that's really the, the part of my story. And then with Georgia Tech, I moved on and came to my job at pharmacy and which was random. Right. I'd never worked in pharmacy, um, but I was hired as a faculty member and director of assessment in the pharmacy school here. And I remember my supervisor at the time, I asked him, I said, why did you hire me? I'm kind of com- 
I'm curious because I don't have this background. He said, you know, I have a lot of pharmacists, Mike. I go, but I need people who have a qualitative mindset, who have a, who understand context. And, and really what I didn't realize now, and I look back is, you know, he really had sort of that, understood that humanics approach. He said, I could find a hundred assessment people who are real good with the technology and they can put data out there. He goes, but I need somebody who understands the context, the nuances. And, you know, the, and I told him, you know, it's funny after that conversation, that was on the heels of me saying to him, he asked what my plan was. I said, well, I could punch out surveys. I can do a lot of stuff for you. He said, but I feel like I need to meet people and get to know the college better so I can better create whatever assessment tools we want to use. And so what I did was I spent a month and a half interviewing every faculty and staff member in the college and um, all the students with through focus groups. And I went on a specific, and I told him, I asked him core questions related to some of the different assessments and surveys they wanted. But um, afterwards he said, you know, I, I was really interested in that. He said, because uh, I said, I know it took a lot. I said, yeah, it took a lot, but in the end, I actually got, um, it, it helps me be more efficient because now I understand the context of why people are doing things, why they care about their work, where their struggles are. I said that you wouldn't get in a survey. I said, exactly. And so you have to start there. That qualitative piece, if I don't understand context, then, then the data means nothing to me. It's just numbers. I, or I can pretend to make it up. Exactly. I've got to understand behind it. Yeah. It's getting that holistic view. We might not be experts on pharmacy content. Right. Um, I'm same, same as you, when, when I got the job as a director of assessment, I kept asking myself, but why me when all the pharmacy programs have pharmacists in this role, don't they need to know about pharmacy education? And I think that it goes back to the definition of humanics, which I'm going to read for our audience, which is, is a discipline that teaches mastery of content, as well as the development of particular skills. So I think that we became masters of the what's expected of on, on the pharmacy education. What are the content areas? how faculty feel about teaching, how, what are they teaching and how do they help each other? So you, by interviewing faculty and, and, and the team, you get a holistic view of that, but at the same time, you're developing these particular skills with technology, with um, data and communicating to them, the human part of communication. And I agree with you, um, you're, you're just like me, a lifelong learner. Like we want to keep learning and learning and, and innovating things. And the book talks about how careers get replaced because the machines can do it better, mm -hmm. right? But in our case, I feel we are being entrepreneurial. We're trying to add more value to the programs by, by finding things that need to be improved. And that it's the context. I think context is the key. We can transform data to information, but we need help from the experts, which are the teachers, the, the faculty, the staff, to add that context to the data so that we can transform that to knowledge. Yeah, if I may, I think uh, that's, uh, for me, um, you know, when I came into pharmacy in 2011, I, you know, I, you know, I'm not a pharmacist. So I wanted to take a step back. I needed to understand. And, and part of it too, I also learned that, you know, pharmacy is more than just pharmacists too. 
it's it's a much broader world. And then it really kind of extended to this greater world of healthcare. And ultimately, healthcare is about patients. You know, there's a lot of things around it. And in the same way, education is about a lot of things, but it is, ultimately it's about students. And so uh, I remember when I wrote our assessment plan, I said our assessment of what we do has to be student-centered. In the same way, patient, we, we are, our patient care, I mean, our work in healthcare has to be patient-centered and it's focused on the patient. But it was interesting is I found myself listening to a lot of colleagues and, and honestly, a lot of my colleagues who are more, have an education background working in pharmacy, but also listening to other pharmacy faculty. And there was this interesting thing in pharmacy healthcare education where people said, I've got to learn all these things that they felt like they had, it's almost like they felt like they had to learn a whole nother degree in education to be able to do this component of being a faculty member. And I really took a different approach to this whole thing. And I said, you know, and again, going back to context, right, is I, and I went back to the faculty and I said, well, if you treat students like you treat patients and you follow the patient care process that you've already been using and you espouse to, you're going to be 90% of the way there in being a good teacher. I said, and I always tell them, I said, let's walk through the patient care process and, and compare it. I said, you know, what's the first thing I want to do as a teacher? I want to collect information on where my students are. I need to know where they are to begin with. And then I need to assess that information so I can determine, you know, what level, what degree, what depth I need to go in with my plan and implementation, which is the next part of that patient care mm -hmm. process. I'm going to come up with a, instead of a therapeutic plan, I've got to come up with a pedagogical plan. How am I going to deliver and teach the content? What material? And then I implement that plan. And then you monitor and evaluate how that plan's going and you make changes and start over again. And, and the cycle rolls. And that's exactly like what we want to do in teaching and learning. Um, so to me, it was as simple as saying, you know, treat, treat, I, we don't, I don't need you to be a PhD education. I need you to be a pharmacist or I need you to be a farm scientist who goes in and you know what they need to look like. But when you get to this part where you're like, I'm not sure how to deliver this in a classroom setting or how to assess it, that's when I would come in or someone like me comes in and, as the consultant. And it is this consulting view. And that's that entrepreneurial creativity. I want them, my job is not to um, uh, tell them what they have to do. My job is to let them do what makes sense to connect it back to its authentic work, to that experience. And then we, we do the best we can. And you know, one of the first things I did, it was I spent most of my time with our experiential faculty in the beginning because I wanted them to I need to understand what, what are we seeing? What do you learn? What are you evaluating at that level? And our, the, we're, I'm lucky at Georgia, we have a very strong experience programs and their assessment and evaluation is very in-depth and they spend a lot of time and they work with partnerships and they're very creative and innovative. And so for me, it's just a matter of connecting those dots. But my goal then is to think, and this is related to the book, is this concept of systems thinking they talk about. You know, I see my job is to say, okay, they're doing this in this area, but let me relate it back to the rest of the program and the rest of, so how do we build to this experience? And I think that's why from an assessment standpoint, that humanities approach is you got to start with, he talks about in the book, you know, understanding what employers want, understanding what the landscape is, and then your experience has become built and connected to that. But that should feed back into what that curriculum is. And it is why um, I think healthcare is what's great about healthcare is that it's at the inner, it's truly at the intersection of all these components, technology, data. I mean, think about big data, epidemiology. I mean, there's so much there and, and 
really how much do our students and professionals, how much do they really understand what's out there and are able to apply it? Probably not as much as we'd like, but maybe it's because we've spent so much time focused on content and, and focusing on pushing content and spending time talking about content in our classes. We haven't spend as much time applying that content in settings. And I think that's the difficult transition and that's that piece we have to get into um, and allowing them to critically think. So I, I think that's, to me, you know, related to that. That's why, you know, I'm all about, you know, it's, it's really not that hard for, it's really not that hard if you treat it like, treat them like patients and go from there, you, you, you actually have a really good model. And that's what I've told the folks in pharmacy. And just like patients, how do we share with them the results, right? How do we share right. the with them the assessment and let them know what are the learning outcomes that we're assessing at each of the courses and what are the skills, like kind of the cognitive skills that, that we're trying to make sure they learned mm -hmm. and where they are, not just in one course, meaning, oh, now I pass biochemistry, therefore I'm a I'm good with biochemistry. No, think about the bigger picture. What does that mean for the whole program and where you are? What are your weaknesses? What are your areas of, of well, nowadays they don't want to call it weaknesses. They want to call it, call it areas of improvement or, or strengths. But how do we deliver that information to the students? So just like patients, they take that on their own hands and can make modifications to their their learning style or not their like their learning um, uh, model or ideas and so that they can drive their own education. So I think that's a great question. Great point for me. Um, it's interesting. When I started the job, I just replicated what we'd done and we did a lot of great work uh, and, and we created this really, really nice thick book at the end of each year that we give the faculty and everyone that had all this assessment data, tons of like charts and tables and everything about classes and outcomes and how we did and the faculty. And I said, I finally started asking, so how many of y'all actually read this? And I realized like there were three of us in the entire college who actually really went through that information. So I really changed the mindset there for me. And, and you know, so we, I moved to using our assessment committee more and sharing things in pockets and pieces. But the goal was to really, I really think that, you know, this learning and assessment has to be at the grassroots level. Um, it's more focused on, you know, pulling, pulling all the data and getting access to all the data from all of our instructional and experiential activities and pulling them into a space. So then we can start analyzing them across each other and connecting those dots. And so probably the, the most powerful metric that we've used or analysis I've done has been focused on, uh, regressions and correlation analysis um, from like pre-admission variables to admissions to coursework to tests and licensing and connecting those dots, but not giving them the whole database, but pulling out and saying, you know, here are the key, here are the areas where we see that there's a strong relationship between how students do in this class or this class. But the part that really helped was we also were able to go deeper and analyze that and see that our students, um, we were treating all of our students the same in our analysis. So when we started cutting it, cutting it and breaking it down by quartiles and started looking more at how often do students fall into the lowest 25th percentile or the top 25th percentile in their performance on key, key indicators that we had identified. And, and what we were, and so it became less about, oh, I did bad on this test or this test. It was more about over time, 
Are you continually falling in a place? And because and, in the end, it's about, you know, there are about 50% of our students, they're going to do fine. And they do really well. They've, they've got the self-motivation. They're already doing that. So we can, we just, we can be there for them. We're more of the safety net for them to say, you know, you're doing a great job. We're going to challenge you to think differently and push along. But then we have students who have come into pharmacy who really haven't had, a, they, they, they've been good with certain classes, but when you have to synthesize information the way you do in pharmacy, you see they struggle. Or there are students who are actually really good at the human element of pharmacy practice, but struggle with some of the core content coursework. So if we know who those people are, we say, well, you've got to have both. So how do we help you in this area so that you can emphasize the good stuff? And that's what we started noticing as we started looking at the best example with our admissions process. We did a really deep dive. And what we found is that um, the, the good old fashioned predictors we've used forever, like prerequisite GPAs and PCAT scores are really good for predicting the top 50% of the class and how they'll do. But when you get to that, the, the next 50th percentile or 20, you know, further down in the list um, of the distribution, well, those, those aren't the elements that stick out anymore. Uh, the better predictors are other things like non-science GPA. Um, or in a lot of cases, we see that some of those students who had uh, their marks might, their scores might be a little lower in the traditional metrics, um, their but their interview score relates really well to how they do in counseling, uh, pharmacy counseling, or some of the other, what I would call the clinical practice end. So it's a very interesting when you break it down. And that comes back to realizing that, you know, and I always remind my team when I work on, I said, you know, when we look at this data, we're not looking at just data, we're looking at people. So if, if a group of people are in there, I wanna see how many times that student is, is struggling, because what it means is I need to figure out what they need. The goal, and what I always say, the goal in mind is not to just identify who they are and what some people would say is quit accepting them. The goal is to find out who they are and figure out why are they struggling and is there interventions we can put in place before they start or early on to kickstart it? Because most of the time what we find when we dig in and we do deeper, and this again is that um, for me it's the systems thinking and it's also in the book, they talk about cultural agility and that idea of being able to understand if we go between different cultures and adapt. And, and it's understanding that students are adapting to an entirely new identity sometimes and way of doing their studying. So if they don't know how to maneuver that, you know, our job is to help them do that. And that systems thinking to me is about, it's not, a, is it about the student or is it about the system? And the system in place sometimes students get lost in. And my job is to pull them out of the system and figure out what's going on and then replace them back in. And, and that to me, and that goes back to my work working with first year students at Georgia Tech and you know that transition time, it's difficult. It's really hard for them to get adjusted. And so when we can identify um, that students, oh, when we look closer, some students have not had anatomy and physiology for like two years before they came to pharmacy school. They have the credit, they have the prerequisite, but they haven't really spent time with it. So then they struggle in a class like pathophysiology or pharmacology, mainly because they have forgotten some of that material. So the simple thing to say is, well, maybe the intervention is simply to say, hey, here are some recorded lectures or other types of quizzes to get you back and ready for these courses ahead of time. You need to dig in and it's a little pre-work they have to do, but we tell them it's gonna help them on the other end. Those are those type of things we're looking at and hopeful for with interventions is to be able to do more with K-12 
catching those students early and talking to them. And that's a great example of how we need to work alongside with technology, because with technology, you were able to create those algorithms that were helping you identify students at risk. And that's where machine um, artificial intelligence can do identify students at risk and maybe some areas of, of improvement. But then the human element of that is how do we help the student? I don't doubt that the machines are gonna get uh, better with time and there are, right? Tesla is uh, living proof of that, that it can take you to your home without you having to drive. Um, but I feel like it, we still need that human part which where you're talking about, let me, let me take a look at this student holistically and intervene by providing them access to these videos or these uh, lectures that they can review so that they can improve their performance. Yeah, and I think the Tesla, that's a, the, the self-driving car is a great example, Alejandra, that I think about what I think about the book, right? Mm -hmm. the, the point of the humanics is that AI and technology is here to stay. And it's actually gonna help us if we embrace it the right way. But the car is a great example, is that car will drive me home, but, Two things have to happen. There's two key humanic elements that have to be there. Number one, I have to tell them where home is, either before or during or when, but they got to know that home, where home is, or that car won't, do, it will just drive wherever. But the second part, and this is the part I think is the human element of all of this, right? Um, I can, the Tesla car can drive me there, but how it drives me there and the experience I have in that car while I'm driving there is just as beneficial, right? It's just as important. Do I have music playing? Do I talk on the phone with a friend? Do I do some work? Temperature. Do I enjoy ambiance, right? What's the temperature? All those pieces. That's the part of education we miss with this, right? So we, sometimes we're just assessing, what we get focused on is assessing, did I get from point A to point B? But we forget about how we got there. And a, a great example, I've been doing a lot of work studying, uh, we've done a lot of research on COVID. Uh, and how it's impact on the student learning experience. And, you know, a couple of things that, you know, what we've studied from last year, you know, I, I, we published some work uh, last summer and then also uh, recently working on some pieces, but we did, we uh, worked with 13 schools and collected questionnaires from when this happened in the spring and asked not just about what your experience was like, it wasn't about how you did in your class, it was more about how did this experience impact you? And what we found were, you know, these themes around mental health and stress and pressure. And we've seen that manifest. Everybody's seeing that more and more. This last semester, we surveyed and, and included in our course end of semester evaluations, collecting data on their how COVID's impacted their student learning experience. And the two things that are huge, right, that, um, again, uh, technology couldn't hasn't solved for them, right? We asked students... Number one, have you been able to connect with your friends? Simple question. Um, and 40%, 40 to 45% said they've had they've struggled connecting with friends and staying connected. But 65% said they were unable to meet new friends and make new friends. And so you think of first-year pharmacy students, that's for us, but first-year students or people new to anywhere in this environment coming in. So this is an interesting place, right? So it's like, we, what we did was because of the pandemic, we became afraid to connect people and we didn't become innovative enough to use technology to do that or come with other ways. You know, 
Um, and every time you turn, well, there are no social gatherings, no social gatherings. Yeah, but how do we do that? Well, you can do it in a virtual sense. And like, but people aren't sure how to do that very well, right? And how to create that connection. And so what happens, we became so focused on, I just got to get them academically from point A to point B. But we forgot about all those other pieces about the car driving us there and what that, what that experience would be like. Um, and the last part was we had 80% of our students say they felt like they were teaching themselves, right? So again, that's that, we missed that human element. The technology can get the class taught. Um, we can have lots of data to tell us some, and we can share that, people can analyze it. But the, the human literate, the, how are we innovative about making that experience? So students feel like, the, and the reason they feel like they're teaching themselves is that there isn't that closing the loop piece that you get sometimes from face-to-face. That's what they're looking for is why well, I studied this. I read this. I know the answer. And I took the test and I passed the test. I took the test. But you don't know the context of that. And my job as a faculty member is to bring that context back. And so that's that humanics piece to assessment is how do we create an, a, an experience where when you're assessing and evaluating and less on the summative assessment exam type of thing we're doing, but more about in the class. And because that's mm -hmm. why I tell people you're always assessing. Every people who say like, I don't do assessment, I don't understand assessment. I said, you're lying. I said, if you tell me that you're a pharmacist and you don't do assessment, you're crazy. You assess <laughs> every day. If you're a physician, you do assessment every day. If you just, a human being can walk down the street, our body is always assessing. It's assessing the environment. You know, you can put your finger on your wrist and assess your pulse rate. You know, there's, there's all these things. We're assessing all the time. We just, we just, we don't, we get caught up in the connotation of assessing in a different place. And in the end, it's really the same thing. I want to observe and understand what's happening and where this person is when it comes to learning new things or doing something that they're trained for. And, and that's that piece, right? And that's um, my job as assessment to me is not to try to create a bunch of things that you have to do to prove something. It's really just to kind of take advantage of what your body and your mind is already doing and see if we can use technology to formalize that a little bit. So it's easier and to share with people and to use, to analyze from a data standpoint. And yeah, so you can focus more on the human element, which is my goal. Absolutely. And, and Mike, thank you for sharing that. What advice would you give um, someone trying to overcome this challenge of making sure that the students are not just learning, but also connecting with each other and connecting with the, the, the program. What yeah. advice and what resources um, help you along the way with this challenge? Um, I think number one is you got to take time to understand the environment. So if you're not talking to students or talking to faculty or being, you know, sharing, asking them questions, um, I always say if you really, anytime you want to lead, be a leader, you have to learn to listen. And I spend a lot of time and uh, people, I always tell people, I said, you know, so the best assessment I do is usually just interviewing somebody or just walking around and talking to people to, to get a barometer check where they are. Cause it leads to the other questions I can ask, whether it be in a survey mode, you know, it's the same thing, right? I do it. I take a sample of people. I talk to them. I get some information and then I put it in a survey and send it out and say, does everybody think this? And if they do, then I'm like, okay, people, we got a bigger problem on our hand and here's some context and the COVID research is a great example when I started when I led the team last spring and we did the research I was committed to saying we're going to do qualitative analysis mm -hmm. because we don't know we need to capture the voice of the students in this situation so what I would say is and a lot of people out there in assessment 
struggle with the qualitative. And I said, you know, you've got to embrace it. You've got to understand context and nuance because, and if you have that, then you can build much better instruments down the road that connect to people and understand those contexts and pieces and pull it out in a different way. And that's important. The la other part I think is important is, is don't feel like with assessment, you've got to give your faculty a bunch of extra things to evaluate and extra service. Um, to me, I'm a grassroots person. I want to, I want to, I want faculty to be faculty and I want them to observe and, and evaluate students in the authentic experience of what they think makes sense to train them to be a pharmacist. My job is to take all that information they have at the grassroots level, combine it with other things and come up with a way to aggregate, come up with aggregate ideas. And so that's what I do is I just, I, you know, I take all their performance and grades and we identify indicators and I pull them all into a giant data set. And then we just start looking at things. We start analyzing things statistically and whatnot and, and take a closer look. And, and I remind people too, is don't get caught up on things having to be perfect when it comes to your measurements, right? I, I, I always tell people that, and it's hard, right? Cause when you work in pharmacy and R square better be like really close to one in their mind. <laughs> yeah. It's usually a drug and you don't want somebody to die or you want it to work. But when we deal with social sciences and, and education, you know, we don't need to have those, there's different scales. And I think being comfortable that, you know, you know everybody says, well, the, the, it's not perfectly normally distributed, so we can't do a T-test. Well, that's not true. You really, in social sciences, we know we're gonna get some sort of mound shape, but it's never gonna be perfect. And we just can't, that's just not gonna happen. And, and, and if it does, it's, one of, it's a, either really lucky or some amazing natural phenomenon. But um, those are those things we have to come up with. And just remembering that you're not, you're not to, your assessment that data you get is not the end all be all. It's, in, it's intended to inform the way you continue to explore and, and come up with ideas. It's supposed to drive your decision making, not be the decision making. And I think that's the difficult piece, right? A lot of times people think, well, I've got numbers and that's why we do it. That's what we do. I said, no, it, it should, no, the, the data you collect should make you stop, pause, ask questions and take the human literacy piece of this robot proof piece. I have to take the context and apply it to what I'm seeing and incorporate it. And it, the best example I think of is discrimination indexes on a test. The numbers will tell you sometimes this question is not good, but a faculty member will look at it and say, wait a minute, this question is fine. There's some other issues at, at bay and they can explain those because they know those nuances. And so we've got to be able to do that. Um, so um, that's the difference between a machine and and having a human doing the job, right? A machine can tell you it's not good, and this, these are the things that we need to do. But we as humans who have more knowledge and we can go through absorbing the ideas, evaluating everything, we know what's next and what we need to apply. And this is a great way to finish our 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 episode today. But before I do, I, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really, really exciting. And once again, thank you for introducing me to the book. I love it. It's just, it, it, it explains why I'm so passionate about what we're doing at Influx, but it also explains my educational background because I have, I couldn't do a PhD. It was really hard for me to decide uh, what to study because I wanted to do so many different things. Yeah. And um, how can the listeners get in touch with you if they have any questions? 
Sure, absolutely. Well, I work at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy. Uh, you're always welcome to email me at mholford, F-U-L-F-O-R-D, at uga.edu. Um, that's really the best way. I don't have a fancy website or anything <laughs> name on it to reach out. But if you go to the UGA College of Pharmacy, you should be easy to find me. But that's the best thing. But, uh, you know, Alondra, I agree. I think it's it's difficult. And I always tell people to remember this. If you, it's funny you said PhD. And I think a lot of times forget about it. They hear doctor, but they forget that it's called a doctor of philosophy. And the reason it's a doctor of philosophy is that the whole point of the PhD is to create new knowledge. And so what I tell people when they're, when I work with doctoral students and they're doing the research and they're, they're struggling with the statistics and saying, well, what is this number telling me? And when I work with residents now, they said, what is this supposed to mean? And I go, that's what, that's what the doctor is. The doctor part of that, that you earn is you looking at the data, understanding what it means and you make the jump, you make the inference and the leap, and then you prove it. And that's your, and you, that's data is just your evidence. Your argument's your argument. You put it out there. That's the philosopher side of this. And that's what people forget. That's why it's, that's why it's a big deal. It's why you have to do a dissertation. It's why you got to sit in front of people and defend it because you have to show them that you can take the data, which anybody can get and do something with it and make the argument and make it in a way that people say that's worth trying or that's worth considering. And, and our, our, our knowledge, and that's the point, is like the education is all about different ideas mixed together. So, yeah. Take the data and, and add value to the world or to a system right. by creating something new. Machines can create things, but human beings can create innovative things. Yeah, they, we create and, ideas. And that's I always love that you know, when I studied law, the, the focus is higher education is supposed to be the the free marketplace of ideas. And that's what the beauty of it is, right? And we always have to protect that. And that's what we try to protect so that, you know, these new ideas happen here. We are the incubator for those things and should be. We haven't really uh, done it as much. We've become very focused on placement and, and just getting people into jobs and we're forgetting that we are still the one of the primary places for discovery. And that's what we have to remember that as an institution in higher ed. So. Absolutely. We all love discovery and we need to keep it that way. And we also need to teach them to keep this discovering things outside of their degree. Yeah. Um, thank you for listening to today's series on Humanics Approach to Assessment and Education. You can subscribe to our events by going to mflux.com and you can also find us on LinkedIn where we post announcements about our solution and resources like today's session. I'm Alejandra Sertuche and you have been listening to Illuminaries. Mike, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks a lot. I got to run, but thank you so much. We'll talk thank later. Thank you. Okay. See you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> You've just listened to Ed Luminaries, inspiring stories and ideas from educators to educators with Alejandra Zertuche. Connect with us at edluminaries.com to join the conversation and access the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.